I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, before I pray, I want to make a couple of announcements that I made last week. Uh, this is the first time I've taught on eschatology in a very long time here at Heritage Fellowship. And um, so I want you to know that my teaching is not normally characterized by this kind of teaching, nor do I see this as a sensational issue. I think there's a lot of sensationalism that goes on with eschatological teaching, and uh, I think that it, it has a damaging effect uh, when it is uh, uh, taken to an extreme because certainly these are not the most extremely essential or important issues in the Scripture, although they are very important. And it is very important for us to have a good, solid understanding of eschatology. Uh, and I wholeheartedly affirm that. And this teaching, frankly, is long overdue. Uh, and I intend to do more of it in the, in the near future and in the uh, far future. So, uh, But I also want to remind you that this teaching of eschatology should cause you to ask some of the most basic questions about your life. When we start talking about the resurrection and the judgment, we're talking about things that are beyond the grave. And all of those things have a direct correlation to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that it's extremely important for you to have those fundamental issues worked out with God. If 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 we should have any response from a study of eschatology, it should be fear and trembling and awe and reverence uh, about the character and the nature of God and the future events. Uh, okay, so having said that, let me also say about disagreements in class. If you have a disagreement with something that I am presenting, uh, you're free to voice that briefly. But I do not want to have any contention with anyone in the class publicly. If you feel like a view is being misrepresented, please reserve your comments for after class, and I promise I will give you an opportunity to uh, present what, whatever that issue is publicly to the class uh, in a setting where you have a little bit of time to prepare and, and uh, give your, your response. But I don't want to have any contentions openly in the class. Is that okay? Everybody with me? Okay, let's see. Uh, remember <laughs> that there's so many variant views in eschatology that there's probably things I'm going to touch on where we have a misunderstanding, either that or I've got it wrong and I'm presenting it wrong, or, um, you know, or maybe you have a variant view of a certain kind of eschatology that that uh, is not, in my mind, the mainstream view, and that's why you don't hear me saying that specifically. So understand that there are just 100,000 variant views, and we start talking about all the little fine points of eschatology, okay? I just want you to remember that and try to, try to have a little grace if you think I'm kind of missing the boat. But uh, the other thing is I want you to know I'm, I, I invite uh, criticism about things I'm saying uh, in private, because I really desire to know the truth, and uh, I want to be able to present these things clearly and accurately. Uh, I am not going to talk about my view of eschatology this morning. I will do that next week. Um, and uh, the other thing is that this whole study of these four weeks is basically just an overview of eschatological events, and the intention is to give all of us a, a uh, comprehensive overview of end-time events so that we have some kind of a framework for understanding eschatology, why there's different views, what the key points of those views are, and uh, uh, so on and so forth. So it's just an overview. I'm not going into a lot of comprehensive details. This study could become very complex, as some of you well know, when you start talking about a lot of the fine points, okay? But I am going to try to highlight some things. And uh, so with that, I want to ask a couple questions. And please just be honest with me here. I want you to lift your hands, and I, I, want, to, I want to kind of survey you 
because I want to understand where you're at, okay? So I want to ask you a couple of questions and just tell me if you know where you're at on these things or where you've been. And the first thing is, how many of you, since you've been a Christian, have never been taught a specific eschatological viewpoint where someone has systematically taken you through and said, this is a view? Okay. What I'm saying is, like, when I first got saved, I was going to a church that was uh, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. And, and that view of eschatology was continually and constantly put forth. Okay? I know that if you, like, for instance, if you have a Presbyterian background, you've probably been taught amillennial. You know, that's just one of the things that <coughs> characterizes pres- Presbyterianism. So if you came from a Presbyterian background, you've probably sat through a pretty systematic overview of of amillennial eschatology. So that's what I'm asking. How many of you have never actually been taught a specific view? Okay. All right. Okay. Then how many of you have been taught uh, premillennialism? Premillennialism. Okay. Good majority of the class. All right. How many of you have read at least the Left Behind book or the Left Behind series? Okay. All right. Of course, you realize that that is the premillennial, pre-tribulational position of eschatology. Right? Okay. All right. Is there anybody in the class who has been taught another view of eschatology? sat under a teaching of another view, like amillennialism or postmillennialism, that kind of thing. Okay? Not to just a, extent, just okay, a just a few. <coughs> All right. That helps me. That helps me tremendously. Okay. With that, uh, we're going to get started. I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we do praise you and thank you for your greatness and your power, your love and your grace. Oh, Lord, we consider you and we are in awe. We praise your holy name, God, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this great world which you have created. We thank you, God, for your glory and for your power and for your promises to us, God. Lord, the thought of you is, is, is very fulfilling to our souls. And we just want to give you reverence and and worship. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for his precious blood, which is the full payment for our sins. We thank you for his righteousness, which you have imputed to us. And we thank you, Lord, for reconciliation with you and for the peace that we now have with you in Christ. What words could describe our thanksgiving? except that we will spend the coming ages of eternity singing of your amazing grace. Oh, Lord, I pray as we look into the scripture this morning that you'll help us to see clearly there what you have lined out for us. I pray, God, that you'll give us discernment and understanding. I pray that you'll give us a good framework in our mind for understanding uh, last things. And I pray, God, that you would just... uh, Uh, Help us to have a right view of these things. And, and God, I pray that you'll give us the the proper amount of zeal and and temperance that we need to to, uh, continue to uh, teach these things and instruct others and help them to understand clearly. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our lives and for the freedom that we have to gather and worship in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay, with that, I'm going to go ahead this morning and I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Okay, uh, so there is that passage, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, wherein the, the millennium is mentioned six times. Six times in that text, there is referred to the thousand years. The thousand years. And uh, so we've been in a discussion about millennialism. And we've been talking about some different views of how different Bible scholars look at this text and, and how they develop their end time view based on this as a primary text concerning the millennial period itself. So last week we talked about amillennialism, and we talked about just some overview type things, and, and we didn't quite make it to postmillennialism, which I wanted to get to last week, and I didn't. So I'm going to go through it this morning, and I'm going to just go ahead and go through the overview of postmillennialism. So if you have that handout, just in brief review, remember that amillennialism is really a bad term. Can somebody tell me why amillennialism is a bad term for that view? Because it doesn't really mean no? What do you mean by that? Okay, they believe that there is a millennium. So it's not that there's no millennium, but that there's no future millennium. Amillennialists believe that there is no future millennium. Okay? It's not that they don't believe there's no millennium at all. It's just that they define the millennium very differently from postmillennialists and from premillennialists. Okay? So that's amillennialism. And then postmillennialism, we'll talk about right now. Okay, so postmillennialism also embraces the concept of, of uh, a millennium, but they have a different view of the nature of the millennial period than do amillennialists and do premillennialists, okay? Um, and I, I just want to tell you this other thing before I get going. I hope to get to premillennialism this morning, and then I want to tell you a little bit about what I'll be talking about next week, and I think this is where a lot of you are really kind of at, so I think this will be encouraging for you. Premillennialism next week, I want to talk about the variant views and key differences that are within premillennialism, okay? And uh, in there, I will be talking about things like the Great Tribulation, and specifically about the tribulation, the nature of the tribulation, the day of the Lord, the persecution and the tribulation saints, 
apostasy and falling away. Okay, I'm going to be talking about those things in regard to the Great Tribulation. And I'll also be talking about some timing. When we go through these things, we'll be talking about timing and looking at some charts and things, many of which that you have already. And then also we'll talk about the timing of the rapture in premillennialism. Okay? We will talk about the doctrine of imminency, which is the, the teaching that the Lord could return at any moment. Okay? We'll talk about that. Uh, the Olivet Discourse. How many of you know what the Olivet Discourse is? Okay? The Olivet Discourse is that passage of Scripture which is recorded in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21 in the Gospels. It is where the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, tell us, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus goes on for, uh, in Matthew, it's a, it's, it's a two-chapter discourse. In Mark and in Luke, it's a one-chapter discourse. And uh, he goes on and he describes what will be the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. And uh, uh, so it's a key text in, in uh, end-time issues, okay, where we get teaching right from the Lord himself, all right? And, uh, and then also, I'm going to talk a bit about distinctions between Israel and the church. And so, if you will, this is where we'll get into a discussion about dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, and covenantalism. And we'll talk about how those things relate, uh, just briefly, uh, to, to end times. I, I want to give you the framework. I want you to know when you see these terms and you're reading through literature, to kind of have an idea in your mind what they mean. Okay? If we get out of here and you've got some of that, then we, then we accomplished our goal. Okay? But more than that, also, if you would, pay attention to the texts of Scripture that we're referring to. You might want to write those down. Because, of course, the most important thing for a Christian in understanding last things is for you to know your Bible. And so for your eschatology to come right out of the Bible, and on any point of eschatology, if you have convictions, you'd be able to say, well, here's why I believe that. Because the Bible says this here, and it says this here, and it says this here. And your convictions are therefore biblical. Amen? Okay, so uh, be sure to write those down. And then pay attention on some of the charts that I'm providing. I'm giving a lot of scripture references. Okay? So when you get some time, you're going to study this, go read these and try to see where they fit in and try to understand what the Bible is really saying. And I just want to encourage you in that way. Okay, so amillennialism teaches that there's no future millennium. Okay? And then they have some various views uh, which I've listed here with bullet points, and we're just calling those the key points of amillennialism. We went through those last week. This week we're going to talk about postmillennialism, okay? Postmillennialism, Christ will return after the millennium, okay? So this is where we talk about the fact that we have the church age, the cross, the church age, and then we have uh, in postmillennialism the fact that when Christ returns at the second coming, in postmillennialism, he returns after the millennium. So that the millennium happens somewhere within this period called the church age. And typically the view in postmillennialism is is that uh, the church evangelizes the world and brings the world into a state of um, Christianization through the preaching of the gospel. And that through the preaching of the gospel and the integration of Christian principles into the culture of the world, it ushers in a time of peace in the world. And that time of peace is what they see referring to as the millennium. Although few of them actually believe it's a thousand-year period. So they take an allegorical view of the thousand years. Okay? Typically in postmillennialism, it's an allegorical view of the thousand years. Just like amillennialism, they think it's a figure of speech, which refers to a period within the church age. Of course, some postmillennialists view, view the whole church age, as the millennium, 
Um, but there's a difference in the very nature of the millennial period itself between amillennialism and postmillennialism, and that's that's really where the differences are. So, <clears throat> uh, but the main point of postmillennialism is that Christ does come at the second coming, but that is after the millennium. Okay, and of course, amillennialists believe that same thing. They believe that Christ will return after the millennium. The differences between amillennialism and postmillennialism have to do with the nature of the millennial period itself. Okay, amillennialists typically believe that the millennium is very much like the premillennial view, that the nature of it is that things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Christ returns, and, of course, in amillennialism, he consummates the ages and brings the final judgment. In premillennialism, he inaugurates his thousand-year reign on the earth. Okay, So those, that would be the difference between amillennialism and premillennialism concerning the nature of the millennial period itself, they have a very similar view. And this is where postmillennialism gets its distinctive. It is distinctive in the fact that it teaches that the nature of the millennium, things are getting better and better and better until it ultimately ushers in an almost utopian kind of a society. Okay? Although uh, it's not quite like the premillennial view, which really is a fully utopian culture under the rule of Christ. We're going to talk about that. But uh, <clears throat> so let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the nature of postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is the belief that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit and that the world will eventually be Christianized and that the return of Christ will, will occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace commonly called the millennium, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So you understand that they're, they're taking that text as a main text. And uh, they are saying that this will happen through the preaching of the gospel. These events will be followed by the resurrection, the judgment, and the eternal state. Okay? Now, of course, as with amillennialism and premillennialism, there are differences between postmillennial believers on different issues. Okay, so even within postmillennialism, you have these variant views of specific portions of it. Okay, so it's just something to remember. Um, you have the variant views basically on any position you take. But I want you to remember something. Remember that nobody in evangelical Christianity differs on the essentials of eschatology. They all agree, okay? Now, there's a whole argument about the fact that, you know, premillennialists have a, take a literal historical in, uh, hermeneutic when it comes to interpreting the Bible passage of Revelation 20 and, and other, and other uh, prophetic literature. They take a literal uh, interpretation, Okay? And the amillennialists and the postmillennialists obviously are taking an allegorical interpretation of Revelation 20. So what happens is premillennialists are typically accusing amillennialists and postmillennialists of sacrificing an essential. And that essential is a literal interpretation of the scriptures. And they view that as a, a strong violation of our principles. And I'm going to talk about that at a certain point here, but... Uh, this is something to understand. There's kind of this argument raging, you know. And, and so, but what I'm saying is, is that the essentials about eschatology, number one, that Christ will return bodily to the earth. And at that time, he will bring uh, resurrection and judgment to all men and women of all the ages. And that there will be a final judgment. And then after the final judgment is the eternal state. Okay? Everybody agrees on that in evangelical Christianity. The amillennialists, the postmillennialists, and the premillennialists all agree on those essentials. Okay? That is the second coming, bodily second coming, the judgment, the resurrection, and the eternal state. Okay? Now, I'm not saying anything about liberals because liberals, in my mind, are a bunch of dead men. I don't even want to know what they have to say. 
I think it's shameful to even speak about what the disobedient do in secret. That's my view of liberal Christianity. Okay? I think they're a bunch of devils. And if you're interested, maybe sometime I'll tell you why. But, uh... So, so I'm not, I don't, we're not even going to consider liberal positions on eschatology. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about evangelical Christianity. Okay, people who believe in the virgin birth and believe that Jesus is God the Son. Okay, people who believe that Jesus created the heavens and the earth with a spoken word. Okay, so uh, key points in postmillennialism. Okay, Revelation 20 describes the present church age, which culminates in a worldwide reception of the gospel and a time of unprecedented peace at the end of which Christ will return. Okay? It, the thousand years is figurative. It is non-literal. They, take an al- it, they think it's an allegory, referring to... So the thousand years is just a figure of speech that, that means allegorically a long period of time. Okay? It's a key point in postmillennialism. Christ reigns from heaven and implements his authority in the earth through the church and the gospel. Okay? However, um, you'll see that the nature of that millennial period, Christ uh, reigns from heaven with the amillennialist as well, but what's happening is things are descending in the earth, in the amillennial position. In the postmillennial position, Christ is reigning from heaven, but things are in an ascending Nature. In other words, things are getting better and better and better. Okay? Uh, Satan, in the postmillennial position, Satan is currently bound. Okay? And because Satan is bound, they, a postmillennialist would say that this greatly enhances the spread of the gospel in the world. So this is a major premise for their view. They say that Satan is bound right now during the church age, and because of that, the gospel has unprecedented power going out into the world. And that's why men are believing the gospel. Okay, that's what a postmillennialist would say. Um, <clears throat> okay, then. Postmillennialism, then, is very optimistic about the power of the gospel to change lives and society as well. When you read postmillennialists, they have a very optimistic view of things. And, and I want to tell you that in the postmillennialists that I've read, it is rather encouraging to, to hear the kind of view they have on what's taking place in history. And, and actually, as you look at what they're saying, you can actually see that what they're saying is true about some of the events that are taking place uh, in history. Um, but, of course, you kind of have to take a position, well, do I believe that things are actually getting better and better and better and better and better? Uh, or do do I not? You know, and of course they talk about the rise of Western civilization and the rise of democracy and how they believe that democracy is actually going to. Many of them will talk about the the fact they believe democracy is going to be uh, the key agent of, of of really opening the world up to the gospel and and, uh, and and men living in a free society and that these are the very means that this postmillennial idea is coming to pass. Um, but then you, you really have to take a position one way or the other. Is that what's really happening in the world? Or are things you know, truly waxing worse and worse? And um, so that's a key element of postmillennialism. It's very optimistic about the power of the gospel. Okay, so then Christ returns at the end or after the millennial or church age. Okay, postmillennialists will typically say that there is one resurrection. So in other words... Uh, there is this church age, which somewhere in there the millennium happens. When Christ returns at the second coming, he consummates the ages right there. There's a judgment. There is a resurrection of both the unbelieving and the believing. Of course, the believers are resurrected to the Bema Seat judgment for degrees of reward. And the unbelievers are resurrected to the final judgment and eternal condemnation. Okay? Very similar to amillennialism in that respect. Then, of course, they believe that the new heavens and the new earth, the prophecies which speak of that, 
are then inaugurated at Christ's return after the judgment and that those things are describing the eternal state. Okay? Then also that the nature of the millennium is non-utopian with a significant presence of sin. So a post-millennialist would say that during this church age, there's not really any major change in, in the way, in the presence of sin and evil in the world. Okay? Now, this is a distinction from the premillennial view. Premillennialism teaches that Christ is going to come and rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that because of his rule, there's going to be a significant limitation of the presence of sin in the world. And so that, that it creates an even utopian style of, 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 of uh, living for mankind on the earth during that time. In fact, some premillennialists believe that Christ will actually change the time-space continuum when he comes. And, and that he will actually supernaturally usher in an age of utopia. And so, like, for instance, the prophecies that talk about the lion uh, laying down with the lamb and the wolf with the sheep and the child playing in the adder's nest. They, they, they literally say that some premillennialists will say that Christ is going to change the whole order of creation. And, uh, and that that millennial period will be characterized by this utopian idea. Okay, But this is a distinctive between premillennialism and postmillennialism. Postmillennialism believes there's going to be a significant presence of sin in the world, just like we see right now. Uh, premillennialists typically believe that sin is going to be severely limited during the reign of Christ. Okay, Then, also, the doctrine of eminency in postmillennialism. Some hold to it, some do not. Okay? Um, replacement theology. Okay? This is something also, like it characterizes amillennialism, also characterizes postmillennialism. The postmillennialist typically believes that the church has replaced Israel and that the promises of God to the nation of Israel are allegorical and now being fulfilled by every spiritual blessing which is in Christ and has been imparted to the church. Okay? And both amillennialists and postmillennialists have that same view. Okay? They believe that the church is fulfilling God's promises to Israel, that, that God is fulfilling his promises to Israel now in the church. Okay? So a lot of passages of scripture they use to make that point, especially Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 uh, and, and various other passages which I'm, I'm not prepared to go into. Um, but I will talk about this uh, later. I'll talk about the distinctions between church, the, the church and Israel and why dispensationalists will say one thing and uh, covenantalists will say another thing. And I'll give you some scripture references and you can study it on your own. Uh, and, and then also, postmillennialism is typically covenantal and non-dispensational. Okay? So, most of your, your postmillennialists have a covenantal view of uh, the ages of history. All right? However, let me tell you that there are new variant views which are surfacing which are post-millennial and, and go more in the lines of progressive dispensationalism. Okay? So it's kind of interesting what's happening with progressive dispensationalism is, is you, have, you have people who, who kind of hold tenets of both. And, and, uh, uh, and yet uh, can hold any, any of these other positions. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Whereas before, like, typically all amillennialists have almost always been covenantal, okay? But that's changing these days because now all these views are out there together and guys just kind of wind up in different places on different issues. It's really quite profound to try and understand how all this is happening. But um, anyway, <laughs> I was going to make a smart comment, but I won't. <laughs> Somebody must have been praying for me. <laughs> You've got a phrase on the uh, little chart at the bottom here. There's polar partial preterism. Yeah, okay. Preterism. Okay. The P word came up. 
Preterism is the idea that, uh, okay, so here you have variant views within preterism, okay? <laughs> a full preterist believes that all of the prophecies of Scripture have been fulfilled in time past, except the, the prophecies which refer to the consummation of the ages, which deal specifically with the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, the resurrection, and the eternal state. They, they will say that those things are yet to come, but that they all come at one time at the consummation of the ages. Okay? So a preterist is typically amillennial or postmillennial. Okay? A full preterist. A full preterist. So a full preterist believes all the prophecies are fulfilled. A partial preterist, okay, believes that some of the prophecies have been fulfilled. So therefore, okay, you all kind of have a like view, because I'm pretty sure all of you believe that some of the prophecies have been fulfilled, but surely not all of them have. Maybe some of you do. I, I doubt that. Uh, but so you have a similar view with partial preterism. Okay, the difference between you and me and a partial preterist is that a partial preterist, um, well, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to try to make that distinction. A, 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 a preterist is always, almost always by nature an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. Uh, in fact, more, more of the time they are an amillennialist because they don't believe that there is a future millennium. And the difference between preterism the other view is futurism, which all premillennialists are futurists. Okay? So you make a distinction between futurism and preterism. Here, let me. Okay, now i got a handle on it here. <laughs> preterism, the antonym is futurism. Okay? Preterism is saying there's all these prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Futurism is saying prophecy has yet to find its fulfillment. Okay? And everybody who is a premillennialist is a futurist. Why? Well, because they believe Christ is coming. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to fulfill all the promises to Israel. He's going to, you know, he's going to bring about almost all of the great uh, prophecies in Scripture that speak about the, the transforming of the current fallen age are going to be fulfilled Yet in the future, okay? Futurism. Preterism, futurism. Is that kind of clear? Clear as mud? No? Question on that? I have this, well, I don't know if he's still a friend, because I'm hurt. But he already, he's, I don't know if he's a preterist, because he said that the Lord had already come. Mm-hmm. So is that a preterist? Yeah. Full preterists typically talk about the fact that some of them say that Christ actually returned. His second coming was um, AD 70. And, and so the, the thing <coughs> I don't know about that specific view, although I've heard of it, is so how does the ages get consummated? I don't know that. I haven't, I've been trying to read on preterism, but like you start trying to read preterism, Man, it is like volumes and volumes and volumes of stuff. It's just a really rather complex system. But are they saying that that's like when he appeared to everyone after his resurrection? Are they saying that was the second coming? No, A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed and the Jewish system was annihilated and the, uh, the age of grace was consummated in their mind. Yeah. But they didn't actually see him. No one records that they saw him bodily. Right. It's a non-bodily return. Oh, okay. It's a non-bodily return. And furthermore, the Olivet Discourse is all allegorical and non-literal. Okay? So I, I don't give any credence to it at all. Why? Well, because I take a literal historical interpretation of the Scripture. So... Okay, but I, I don't want to be disrespectful because there's a lot of men that I have a lot of respect for who have some other views than me and, and have allegorical interpretation of some uh, prophetic scriptures. 
Okay? So, futurism, preterism. Everybody got that one? All right? And um, that's everything on postmillennialism. Except I wanted to tell you who some of the chief proponents were. Remember last week I told you about some of the chief proponents of amillennialism? I'm going to tell you postmillennialism. Okay. B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield. Many of you will recognize him. Tremendous man of God. Has a tremendous view of the atonement and, um, and the church, as well as Charles Hodge. Both of these men have given the church a profound and insightful text on systematic theology. Okay? If you have systematic theology on your shelf, it's probably Hodge. Okay? Or, or um, uh, another one here is Louis Burkhoff, systematic theology. He's a postmillennialist. This is an absolutely fabulous theology here. But his view on end times is postmillennial. Okay? So he's one of the leading proponents. B.B. Uh, Warfield, A.A. A. Hodge, and then also R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul. Now, is a post-millennialist. Well, the deal is, is when he wrote this book, he was an all-millennialist. And it is said that he has recently changed his view to post-millennialism. And uh, I was at one of the Shepherds' conferences. I'm sorry? Can you get a refund on the book? <laughs> Actually, he doesn't really say anything in here that he would contradict Except uh, the idea of the distinctive between amillennialism and postmillennialism, and that is that the, the world is going to, the, the, the very nature of the millennial period, that the world is going to be evangelized through the preaching of the gospel. That's the thing that he's, he's shifting on. Okay? I was at the Shepherd's Conference two years ago, and Sproul was there, and he got up, and usually these guys get up, and for about three, three or four or five minutes, they'll kind of jeer at one another and tease one another. R.C. Sproul's always picking on MacArthur about baptism and that kind of thing. And uh, so he, met, he, he was joking about end times, and I kind of picked up what he was saying. He, he's all something about, this guy's a premillennialist, and this guy's an amillennialist, this guy's a potent, this guy's a preterist. And, and then he said something like, and I live in every camp, or, or something like that. You know, and basically what he was saying is, is that, you know, all these Bible scholars have a lot of good points, yeah. you know. <laughs> but, uh, and if you've studied the different views, you'll, you, will, you will absolutely see that, that there is a lot to learn from all these different guys. Anyway, we all know that my view is the right view anyway. <laughs> so, wait, oh yeah, so if you want to read on amillennialism, I'd recommend this book. It's, it's the only whole book I've read on amillennialism. It's R.C. Sproul, The Last Days According to Jesus. And if you want to read on postmillennialism, Burkhoff, Warfield, or Hodge. Okay? And um, there are no church fathers that are postmillennial that I know of. Okay? No, no early church fathers that are, I'm sorry, no early church fathers that are post-millennial. Okay? Any questions on post-millennialism? I'm just confused by the point where you said the nature of the millennium is non-utopian with a significant presence of sin. Mm-hmm. It seems inconsistent with their view that everything is getting better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Right. So I tried to make that distinction. Okay. The premillennialists believe that the, the nature of the millennium is going to be something vastly different than what we are in right now because Christ will be ruling the nations and and through the implementation of his rule will come about a culture that is righteous it will be a rule characterized by righteousness in the earth okay and that's very different than what the postmillennialists will say about what happens when the world gets christianized it's basically just going to be the idea where um, you know, as a matter of fact, Grudem has a perfect statement about that. I'll show it to you. 
sorry to hold you up here. can't find it. He's basically saying that uh, okay, so post-millennialists are simply talking about an earth with many, many Christians influencing society. Okay? Whereas premillennialists are saying, time out. Christ is on the throne here. Okay? And, and so that, that, that culture be, is literally by nature utopian. In other words, it's it's dreamland, man, right? So they would a postmodernist believes this is the millennium, we're in it, this is what it's like, you know. And, and they would a lot of them will say America, you know, that's a lot like what it is, and that democracy spreading, eventually the whole earth will be that way, and and uh, they have this elevated view of themselves as Americans, as if this is some kind of a righteous culture or something. Okay, all right, okay. Any more questions on her? Yeah. The Bible is just man's interpretation because there's so much. I mean, there's only one truth. And even and within Christian circles, they're sitting there arguing about what they believe that one truth is. And it's just a bunch of men's interpretation. I mean, I have a difficult time with that. I mean, I usually, if I listen to radio, somebody starts talking about it, I listen to some other sermon because I don't want to listen to arguments about stuff that they don't really know as true. They're just stating their opinions based on, you know, how they feel. So it kind of plays into that whole, you know, the Bible is just based on who you believe, you know, what man's interpretation of the Bible you believe in. Mm-hmm. And I just have a really difficult time with it because those volumes of books that you have right there are just man's opinion mm-hmm. of what the truth is and they all differ. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... I want to try and address that very respectfully. <coughs> so, know. do you know the whole truth? No. I know. It, all right. So, my point is, is that who does? And take it on any issue. I mean, eschatology is, becomes very complex, right? Uh, but what about the atonement? You know, what what about the, the deity of Christ? Why are there variant views on that? And, and I want to tell you why there is. Because we live in a fallen world, and there is one truth. But are there variant views, like, with the apostles? I mean, did they spend volumes of time teaching all of these details that... Okay, so let's ask that same question about the atonement. Are there variant views with the apostles in the atonement? No, there's not, is there? No. We look at the Bible, and we come up with a systematic theology about who God is, what he is like, what his purposes are in the world... And how we apply his redemption to us, the doctrine of salvation, right? And the doctrine of the church ecclesiology. We, we look at all that and we have a, a very consistent view. You and I have a very consistent view, right? Because you're reading the same Bible I'm reading. Right. You take it literally. I take it literally. We read it. We see what it says. And, and there it is. You with me? Okay. Nevertheless, there are all these people out there who are arguing about the nature of the atonement. And who are trying to say, no, that's not what the apostles taught. And, and in the evangelical view, those are attacks against the word of God, right? Which is kind of what you have a disdain for. That's what I hear you saying, man. What is all this scrapping going on? Well, all the scrapping is because there is one truth, and that truth is extremely important. What, what becomes, becomes kind of, uh, uh, we lose a little patience with all this argument about eschatology is because eschatology a lot of the fine points are non-essential matters. So some people will even say, man, who wants to scrap about all this stuff? Who wants to understand it? And they, they kind of throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. And, and, and that's a bad thing because if God didn't want us to know it, he wouldn't have put it in the Bible. And if he did put it in the Bible, he wants us to know it. Therefore, because of that and because there's only one truth, we're going to have to scrap about it. We're going to have to... You know, George Ladd is going to have to disagree with John MacArthur, and they're going to disagree with Louis Burkhoff. Why? Well, because the issue is very complex in the Scripture. It really is. It's, it's, it's not 
So, I mean, guys, after studying this for years and years and years, have a specific view that they might take, but they still don't have all the complex details worked out and even in their own minds. You know, but they, they may have a, you know, I, I'm pretty confident in my view, right? But there's a lot of things you mean you start asking me about. I'm like, well, you know, I really haven't had enough time to really understand that from the Bible, you know, and because these issues become very complex. So what I'm saying is, is that I, I'm with you. I have the same disdain for all of the, you know, differing views. And, and, and really, it's, it's not just about man's opinions. It's about great scholarly gifts to the church that God has given, who we call prophets and teachers. That's who these men are. All of these men here all agree on the atonement. They all agree on the deity of Christ. They all agree on the doctrine of the church, pretty much. Right? The more essential those matters are, the more agreement and unity there is among these guys. That's why I said, when we start talking about liberals, we're out the window here. I'm talking about evangelical Christianity. You with me? So I hope I'm addressing that, Charlotte. I mean, you know, it's just, a, it's just this thing where because there's one truth and there's so much spoken about it in the scripture, it's really hard to kind of get your finger right on that, what that one truth is. I mean, if you try to say, will Christ return before the millennium or after the millennium, where are you going to go look in your Bible? Because you can't open to, you know, a certain place in the scripture and it says, Christ will return before the millennium. And the millennium is just like this and just like that. It's just not presented that way in scripture. So what you have is all of these prophetic ideas that are communicated through the mouths of prophets. And then you have us. We're trying to read through that and interpret it and put it into some kind of a systematic framework for understanding. And that's where the nature of the argument is created. There's so much in the Bible that benefits our life You're certainly welcome to hold that view. I know, and I don't. I, I feel like I'm wrong because you know we're spending this time studying it and every bit. You know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. But I almost feel like there's something that I. Well, really I could just come in here and I could teach you all my view. Yeah. And I could be very dogmatic about it. The good Bible teachers though don't do that. Well, here's here's what I'd rather do. Here's what I'd rather do. I'd I'd rather teach you Christians how to be very discerning, and and give you some tools for discernment. And see how to kind of take an issue like this and look at it from, a, from an overview standpoint and then take the biblical data that you have and figure out what the truth is. Because the same kind of thing happens when we talk about the atonement, right? And so it's really important uh, uh, that we have an understanding of these things. How, why do we know that? Because God has it in the Bible, Right? So if God's got it in the Bible, he wants us to know it. And it's worth scrapping over. As a matter of fact, it's worth dying over. But so when we get into the complex details, though, those things become less and less essential. And so there's a certain level or degree of zeal that we need to apply with our, the non-essential issues. Okay? Jerry, were you going to comment? Uh, I was just going to say that <coughs> it, it, a lot of Christians are convinced that we're living in the last days, right? Are there are there people in this room that believe that Christ is returning soon? Okay. So we know that part of his return is certainly going to be a one-world government led by the Antichrist. And we know that eventually the Antichrist is going to control the world to the point where if you don't show your allegiance to him, he's going to cut off your head. And I think part of the problem is there's so many voices in regards to the topic that a lot of Christians have just thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And if we truly are living in the last days, there will be a vast majority of Christians who will be totally unprepared for what's going to happen at the time of the end. And I've actually ran into Christians who believe that if they take the mark of the beast, that God's actually going to forgive them for doing that. And so I think that, I think the devil has done a really good job 
in regards to clouding the issue because most of Christendom doesn't believe that there is an ultimate truth when it comes to the rapture, the second coming, the millennial kingdom. And it just really tears me up to see so many different shades of gray. And it's going to just lead to the church being unprepared for the final hour. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of sad to see that. Yeah. Nevertheless, well, truth is absolute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tr- we truth is. We don't believe that in regards to this particular subject. Right. So many people, many people uh, will say they believe in absolute truth, but what Jerry is saying is, is that the way they deal with this issue and this subject would suggest that they don't believe in absolute truth uh, in this in this matter. And like, for instance, you know. Even Jerry was propounding a view right there. He was saying, and some of the things he was saying, if you have a lot of discernment about these issues, you can already tell where he stands in his end times based on the things he said. Okay, And even within the camp of premillennialism, which we're going to get to now, uh, you have all these variant views. And so you get to these little fine points, you know. Like Jerry brought up a few, the rule of the Antichrist, the, a one-world government. There was a couple more. Uh, the persecution of the saints under the mark of the beast. Uh, there's a couple more you said there, Jer. And see, see, he's got all that stuff in his mind. It all fits into a place in his mind. Okay. When I when I became a Christian and I was going to a, a, a certain church and I was being taught a certain view, it, it was the it was the things where I was reading the Bible and I was seeing things inconsistent with what I was reading in the Bible. It caused me to want to go and study it and understand the truth. What I found was the study of eschatology is extremely complex study. And there's a lot of different views, and it's a hard thing to study. You can't just, I mean, you you just really have to have a broad knowledge of Scripture and not the kind of normal Scriptures we hear. I mean, we're talking about prophetic literature. How often are you in the book of Amos trying to grab a hold of, you know, an overview of end-time events, you know, I mean, so you have to really spend some quality time learning what the Bible says and what those things mean and how they fit and understand. And, and it, it, the, the whole discussion does become rather discouraging. That's why I'm trying to give you this overview. So when you see that somebody you respect has a view that doesn't seem consistent with the Bible to you, that it, 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 it causes you to go to the Scripture and find out what the Bible says. And furthermore, that you have a little discernment to know why they believe what they believe. Okay? But I do have a view. And quite frankly, if you were willing, I would come in here and very dogmatically teach it. (laughs) But I'm I'm trying to be rather sensitive to my audience, and I feel like a more important thing at this point with this audience is that you folks have a framework and an infrastructure for understanding what these things are. And, And then maybe as time goes on in the future... I can kind of move you into my view of eschatology. You see how that cunning craftiness? <laughs> Jerry? And, and one other thing I'd like to say is uh, I was brought up in church most of my life. When I was like 12 or 13 years old is when I first heard that Jesus was returning. And, you know, that was in the late 60s, early 70s. And that really sparked my interest in end times theology. And... Up to this point where I'm at now, a lot of the stuff that you're covering is just the traditions of man. And that's really the scary part. Is, is you, you see that people create theologies more on the tradition of men and not necessarily on what the Bible teaches. Because, you know, ultimately the Bible is absolute truth. And the Bible is pretty clear about the return of Christ, what's going to happen. And as Holy Spirit-filled people, if you do your homework, God and the Holy Spirit will guide you into the truth. Sometimes you have to shut off all the many different voices that's out there, and God will lead you into what the truth is regarding the last days, because it's going to be vital that you know the truth if we are the generation of people that are heading into the last days. Okay. So, <clears throat> if I offended anyone by saying that, I'm sorry. <laughs> we understand, Jerry. I feel the same way. Um, okay, briefly, I'm going to tell you um, 
about premillennialism. We're going to end here. <coughs> premillennialism. If you if you have this handout I gave you this morning, premillennialism is a whole different view than amillennialism or postmillennialism because it believes that Christ is actually going to come and set up a physical kingdom on the earth and that that is going to vastly change the course of history and that that, of course, will be a literal 1,000-year period, okay? The, the key differences between premillennialists become, well, if you look at this chart I gave you on the back here, this is one that talks about the timing of the rapture, okay? Well, this is just four views right here, and there, trust me, there's a lot more than four, okay? And even these are just, like, for instance, if you look down at the post-tribulational view, the third one down, you know, I, I showed you there the 70th week of Daniel is equivalent to the seven-year tribulation, Okay? Well, some post-tribulationalists don't believe quite like that. They have a variant view of that, okay? And so uh, even within each of these little views, there's a lot of variances, okay? Because when you start getting into these little fine points and things, it's, it's more difficult to discern where in the timeline of history those things kind of fall, okay? So, uh, but within premillennialism, this is what we're going to be talking about now for the next at least week or two, um, within premillennialism, you have all these little variant views. And as we looked at this morning, most of us that are in this class have been taught the premillennial viewpoint. Um, and, and furthermore, some of us have even read the Tim LaHaye books and so on and so forth. And so you have a pretty good grasp on what premillennialism is. Okay? Um, because those things do present an accurate picture of premillennialism, generally, okay? But when you get into the fine points and the details, that's where things might change a bit, okay? And, for instance, this right here, if you look at the top view, the pre-tribulational view, that's the view that's presented in the Tim LaHaye books, okay? But you have all these other views among premillennialists, okay? So... Um, we're going to delve into the differences in premillennialism as we discuss it. Um, and uh, those, are going to, those differences are going to be over these issues. The Great Tribulation, the timing of the rapture, the doctrine of eminency, uh, where the Olivet Discourse fits into these matters, and then distinctions between Israel and the church. That's where you're going to find differences in the premillennial viewpoint. Okay. Now, one thing to remember is premillennialism takes a historical, literal interpretation of all of Scripture. Okay? They do not apply allegories or figurative interpretations of Bible passages, typically. There are some premillennialists who have some of that. Uh, but... Uh, Typically, they're taking a historical, literal interpretation. So you read right here in Revelation 20, there's an angel with a great chain. He binds Satan. He binds him for a thousand years. Christ comes and rules on the earth for a thousand years, and they believe that's a literal, absolute thing that happens. And it's 1,000 years from the day that begins until the day that ends. Okay? And uh, that's a literal, historical interpretation of the Scripture. Okay? So uh, next week, we'll dive into premillennialism. We'll talk about it as, as an overview. And then I'm going to dive in there, and I'm going to start really stirring up the waters. And this is where all the hackles in the back of your neck are going to start standing up. And, and, uh, and I know that within this room, uh, several of these views are represented. <laughs> so if you want to teach next week's class, well, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not scared. But uh, and then and then I am I am gonna tell you what my view is. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it. Um, but but in the overview of premillennialism, you'll get a pretty good grasp on what that's all about. Okay. Is there anything that anybody in here would like me to specifically address about premillennialism uh, in the next class or two? Yes. In first and um, second Thessalonians, are you gonna be hitting in one? 
starting with three down, nine, through, well, as far as you want to go. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 7, through chapter yeah, 2, verse yeah, 10. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, thank you. Okay, sure, I'll touch on that. In my mind, those are defining scriptures. Those, those scriptures have major implications on, on your view within premillennialism. Um, it's a major piece of Paul's eschatology there. Anything else? Any, any specific issues on premillennialism that you want me to address specifically or scriptures? Okay. Are you going to get into the progressive... Uh, yeah, I will. I will talk. Yeah, I will talk a bit about uh, progressive dispensationalism and distinctions between Israel and the Church. Before I run off, uh, I, I want to tell you also recommend some other books. John MacArthur takes the pre-tribulational, premillennial view. He wrote a book called The Second Coming, and um, this is his work on that. Grudem's theology, which we study here in the church. He takes a historic premillennial view, um, and of course he goes through all the views and gives arguments for and against on both sides. It's a pretty long section in his theology on premillennialism. He's absolutely a premillennialist, but he has the position which has come to be known as historic premillennialism. This is a book I recommend that every Christian who's interested in this issue read. Read this book, The Blessed Hope by George Ladd. I think this is a fundamental book. If you want to know more about historic premillennialism, this is a book right here to read. This is a book I recommended last week. The Millennium. The Meaning of the Millennium. Four Views. In this book is presented amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. Four Views. And then each of the authors writes their section and then they each write a response to each other's section. So it's just really an educational book. The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views by Klaus. Okay? Another really good book is by Leitner, uh, The Last Day's Handbook. Okay? The Last Day's Handbook. This lays out all the views and, and different issues and so on and so forth. Okay? How do you spell the author's name? Leitner. Light with N-E-R on the end. Okay. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for this privilege of being able to look at your word and talk about these uh, issues which are very controversial at times, God. I pray that you'll help us to have a right view of these things. I pray that you would give us temperance. God, that you would also give us zeal. And I pray, Father, that you would just help us to, uh, to hold these things uh, as you would have us to hold these things, God. I pray that they would live in right balance in our Christian life. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be proclaimers of end-time prophecy and Scripture, even as you were and even as your apostles were, God. I pray that you'd help us to have biblical view and biblical convictions about these things and that we would be patient teachers of these matters to all that are around us. God, we thank you for your great love to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.